Hi Triber, we're back for the next season. Smart Girl Tribe has grown to become the UK's number one female empowerment organisation. We have an event series, a digital magazine, a membership platform and this podcast. What can you expect from us? Interviews from women all over the world who are driving change and pushing the needle forward. From actors to activists, to CEOs and conflict photographers, to the brains behind some of the world's largest corporations. When you're not tuned in every Wednesday at 6pm, then make sure you're chatting to fellow unapologetically ambitious women in our private Facebook group, the Smart Girl Tribe Society, or sharing our ever so inspirational content on Instagram at Smart Girl Tribe. Hello Triber, welcome back to the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. I'm so excited to share this episode with you. Rosie Peacock is an extraordinary positive psychologist, so she basically knows how to achieve long-lasting happiness. In this episode, we discuss the secret to happiness, which Rosie reveals, daily strategies that you can implement from today to make you a more positive person, and we also get into second wave feminism, and if that has had an impact on how women measure happiness nowadays. We talk about motherhood, marriage, societal expectations, and if we would genuinely be happier living a more minimalistic lifestyle. This is one of my favourite podcast episodes ever. I learned so, so much and know you will as well. Hi, Rosie. Thank you so much for joining us today on the Smart Girl Tribe podcast. It's great to have you here. Can you just share your story with our Smart Girl Tribe audience, please? Absolutely. Thank you so much. And it's really great to be here. Um, So my story um, starts with me coming out of university and knowing that I wanted to make some good happen in the world. And instead of like really searching for fame or fortune, I really just wanted to make a massive positive impact and make that as big as possible. So I went all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed into uh, teaching and I became a secondary school teacher. And within a few short years, I was incredibly burnt out. So um, during that time, I um, also had a few side hustles because actually teaching in the UK, you don't really earn a great deal amount of money and also wanted to continue to extend just beyond the kids that I was, uh, I was reaching in the schools. So I started to teach English online and create online courses that would also help people um, in other places to access English. Um, Taking on so much work all at once definitely led to me having an absolute time of being burnt out and incredibly depressed. And I felt like, oh, I just don't know what to do with myself. So I did the classic kind of eat, pray, love thing and packed it all in, fled the country to go to India and um, went off and trained to be a yoga and meditation teacher. And during that time, I felt absolutely in love with the concept of how well-being is prioritized in the East and how I think in the West we really prioritize and treating the symptoms of sickness. Whereas in the East, it's a totally different ethos and it was all about promoting flourishing um, from, from point A rather than just treating the things that were bringing people down and making them sick. Um, and then from that, I just thought to myself, it would be so interesting to study this further and to study this in the West. And so I ended up going on to do a master's in positive psychology and coaching psychology and from there, um, continued to really fall in love with the work around coaching and how coaching can help people reach human flourishing. So yeah, a little bit of a long story, but, but that's no, me. 
No, incredible. I mean, you became a psychologist, Rosie. So why did you decide really to become a positive psychologist? What does that mean? Yeah, awesome. So there's two basic um, perspectives in the Western type of psychology. And I don't think it's as black and white as we make it really now. I think all of psychology is understanding humans and how they work. But the type of psychology that most people grow up knowing about is the type of psychologist, which is a clinical one. So again, it's that perspective of treating ill health. It's the kind of like when you go to the doctor and you get given the tablets, it's the treating the things that are wrong with you rather than looking at what's right with you and really emphasizing that. And because I came to psychology, not from a background of um, wanting to fix people, but from a background of exploring well-being myself and understanding what it meant to prioritize wellness at the forefront of my life, when I discovered positive psychology, I realized that we have this whole science around happiness and joy and optimism and what makes our human functioning at its optimum. And I think that's the kind of thing that really, really fascinated me because I realized at the core of everything that you do, ultimately, you do it because you want to be happy, not because you do it because you want to be not sad. And so this idea of how psychology worked in the West was really confusing to me because you don't ever do something to not have depression. You do it because you want to be happy at the end of it. And ultimately, the choices that we make are in a way to become the happiest, healthiest, most flourishing version of ourselves. And sometimes we sabotage and obstruct that, of course. But ultimately, that's that's the kind of driving force of what we want. So I wanted to cut to the chase and really study what makes you happy without having to study the different routes to get there and to just figure out, well, hormonally, chemically, neurologically, scientifically, what makes people happy? Mm-hmm. And can you explain the terms soul aligned sales and heart centered business strategy, please, Rosie? Yeah, absolutely. So the type of work that I've gone on to do in coaching later on is helping business owners to create a business that is holistically viable, is soul aligned, and it brings happiness and life design to the forefront of the business that they build. So whether that's how they sell things and whether they do it from a place of absolute enjoyment and what they're selling is something that they feel like the world absolutely needs and selling becomes an active service for the world Um, or whether it's creating a sense of happiness and joy and understanding with how the world works um, and therefore putting that into the way that their businesses run. Or it might even be something like creating a schedule that allows you to be at home and to be a good mother and somebody who you know puts their family at the forefront of what they do so it's really about noticing first of all how you want to feel and then creating a business and the things that you sell around that rather than around um you know i just want to make a load of money and if if you want to just make a ton of money and you don't care how you do it and who you tread on to get there i am not your business coach (laughs) A lot of entrepreneurs, female founders and creatives listen to this podcast, Rosie. What do you think is the most common struggle you see, especially among successful women? I would say that there's a few really common struggles. I don't know if there's necessarily a specific one, um, but there are definitely a series of things. So, And they're all actually very interlinked with one another as well. 
So there's this first idea, um, and you might have heard about it before, of imposter syndrome. So it's this feeling of not feeling like you deserve to be at the place that you've actually earned to be um, and so feeling like you're an imposter within your own life so the levels of success that you've reached whether it's um, through working your way up in a career or through building your own business that somehow someone's just going to find you out as an imposter that you're not really supposed to be there and that level of self-doubt and and worry is something that really uh, can be quite constricting for women and especially it happens to women who are incredibly high achieving which is ironic because they're what the ones you would think would feel most confident and yet they seem to be the ones that struggle the most to to be able to perceive their own success and their own worthiness and that might come out as them discrediting their own achievements or feeling like a fraud and then there's another one which comes up which is very interlinked with this, which is perfectionism. And this is um, another idea that really affects a lot of incredibly successful women. And it's this idea of, so when you look at positive psychology, um, they, that is all about shifting the perspective to be able to allow yourself to optimally flourish. And perfectionism is something that is really detrimental to your flourishing. And we think that by being a perfectionist, we get more out of ourselves, but actually it's a form of self-sabotage and it keeps, it keeps very successful women actually quite stuck and paralyzed and procrastinating. So this idea of perfectionism is that unless it's 10 out of 10, it's not enough. And right underneath at the very other end of the scale is progress. So looking at one out of 10 is better than naught out of 10. Two out of 10 is better than naught out of 10. So it's about allowing and seeing your journey and respecting every step of that as something that's really important. Whereas the 10 out of 10 and seeing like the nine out of 10 isn't good enough. Eight out of 10 isn't good enough because none of that is perfect. And so you can actually see why that would ruin self-esteem. It would make you want to procrastinate because you know that whatever you do isn't going to be good enough. Um, And then the last thing is overwork, workaholism and burnout. So it's this idea that if you're feeling like a perfectionist and nothing's ever good enough, or if you're feeling like an imposter and like people are going to figure you out, that what ends up tending to happen is that these women end up working to a point where they sabotage their own mental health, their potentially their relationships and start to get to a point where work takes over their entire life to a point where actually they can't cope and their brain and body starts to make them switch off because they're not going to have the switch off valve within themselves um and so all of these three things i think the common denominator is they come down to this feeling that ultimately unfortunately whether you're incredibly successful or not many women tend to not feel good enough where do you think that comes from do you think that's societal expectations do you think it's childhood experiences is it media? Why is it? Because it's so true. And I have this conversation all the time. The number one thing that women especially struggle with with is the idea that no matter what they've got going for them, you know, no matter if they're at the top or if they're incredibly fit or very successful, if they're financially free, if they have a family, they can literally have it all and still feel like they're not enough. Why is that? It's a great question. And I think I'd be a much, much richer woman if I had the answer to it. But I do have a few different theories behind it. And I think that 
partly it's to do with the way that our school system is set up. I mean, having been a teacher and seen it firsthand, we have a system where we get people to compete against one another rather than collaborate with one another. And so whether that's in sports or whether that's in test scores and academia or whether that's in business, ingrained within a lot of our society is this very masculine idea of competition over collaboration. And actually as females, we naturally want to collaborate over compete with one another. We are communicators and society creators and people who want to join together and work together. And so this very masculine energy of competition, which is a very testosterone fueled way of working, simply doesn't account for women's way of communicating and collaborating and working together to make something amazing happen. And so if you grow up in classrooms and on sports tracks and in um, business and work life where somebody is always going to get a promotion over you or your grade is going to be less than theirs or if you are not number one then you are number two and that's a loser. That idea ingrained in people over time manages to make women tap into this deep feeling of like, no matter what I do, it just doesn't feel good enough because unless I'm the best, then it's not enough. And even when I am the best, there's still this feeling like it's not enough because it's lonely and women don't need to work in a lonely way. We're not lone wolves. We're such natural collaborators with one another. And so when we can start to work in a way that truly respects that element of ourselves, where we raise each other up, where we allow ourselves to feel lifted as a community and a collective together and to work in a way that truly respects that part of our identity and who we are. I think that feeling of not good enough manages to go because you can see within every other woman around you that reflected wonder of how they are doing and in being able to see that you can also see it in yourself so i think female with female bonding is a really 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 important factor in reducing that feeling of not enoughness mm -hmm. and one thing i'd love to bring up rosie is the media do you think the media and when i talk about media i mean books films shows do you think it portrays women being busy and doing it all to the extent that it has a detrimental effect on our mental health. Yes, completely. Um, but I also do believe that there are ways to have everything that you want. I don't believe that you need to sacrifice something to have what you want. However, I think it's also important that what you want, you need to base on what you want to feel rather than what you want to achieve. And I think this is where the problem really comes down to, is that all of the media focus and all of our cultural conditioning is based on an achievement idea of happiness. And I've studied positive psychology and what I've noticed is really achievement is not the be all and end all of happiness. Happiness and truth, true happiness, a lot of it comes from being present in the moment and being able to experience what you're experiencing now and feeling how you want to feel and if you can prioritize doing things that make you feel good rather than doing things that make you look good 
you know then you really can have it all you can have a job that you love because you've chosen a job of how it makes you feel you can choose a relationship based on how it makes you feel and you know a lot of our choices are based on how our parents want us to look or how our partner wants us to look or how other people in society will perceive us and that that means that we are making our goals based on an extrinsic goal setting which actually is the least effective type of goal setting that you can have. An intrinsic type of goal setting is a one based internally on how you want to feel and who you want to be. And if as women, we were told to prioritize working in a way around how we wanted to feel, if we were told to have relationships based around how we wanted to feel rather than anything to do with status or financial gain, because why do we want those things anyway? It's because we, how we want to feel, but we think about it in such a backwards route. So yes, I do think the media is the problem in a large part of the cultural idea around it. But I think it's because we think happiness is an end goal rather than realizing that happiness is actually the journey of life itself. It isn't an end point that we get to and I don't think it's just women who are brainwashed with that men just as much as women want the flashy car or the job promotion or whatever it is that they think that happiness lies at the end of that rainbow as this like gold pot of gold that never seems to truly appear but ultimately it's because I don't think that mass media would be able to sell as many things to you if you understood that all the happiness you ever need is inside of you because then you wouldn't need all of their products and services you wouldn't need to feel not good enough and a lot of like the marketing principles which I teach the opposite of because I teach the positive psychology principles of marketing but a lot of marketing is based around there isn't enough there's scarcity you're not enough you if if you have this you will feel good enough if you um if you have this lipstick you will be beautiful in in inherent within that is you are not beautiful until you have this and so big corporations and businesses have so much say around the cultural messages and it serves big businesses in terms of it's very easy to sell to somebody who doesn't feel enough oh my gosh this is really powerful rosie i'm really enjoying this i'm learning so much i mean i have to ask if i was coming to you as almost a blank sheet of paper i'm a business owner and i said you know what rosie i don't have much time i need to be happy what can i do from tomorrow to start feeling happier what would your advice be First of all, just have a really clear morning routine that is carved out as time just for you because ultimately it's something that we can choose to set up. And I would say, get your phone and put it on charge in a completely different room. Um, have a, an alarm clock that goes off if you need to wake up at that time or just keep the blinds open. I mean, in the English summer, you can keep the blinds open and you, you end up waking up at a very good time anyway, just naturally with your body clock, which is super healthy for you. But having some way of waking up that isn't phone dependent so that the first thing that you're doing isn't absorbing information is so important for our well-being. Now, these phones and the social media attached to them is designed with teams of psychologists and dopamine researchers and people like that who actually create it in a way that is addictive. 
So it's like waking up and the first thing you do in the morning, having a cigarette or a cup of coffee, of course you realize those things aren't good for you, but we don't realize that our phone neurologically is just as toxic as those things. And I bet a lot of the listeners here will be people who just wake up and they open their phone first thing because that's what happens when you have your alarm on your phone and so before you know it you've checked your notifications and you've fallen into a world of comparisonitis and feel baditis and I just don't want to get out of bed in the morning and I just might put snooze on and stay there so I think like the first best thing that you can do is to put your phone somewhere else you wake up in the morning and the first thing to start your day is to start the day just feeling into your body. You don't even have to open your eyes and just being grateful like, oh, here I am alive and grateful. And because you don't have a phone to switch off and to distract you, you can just be present and think about how you feel. And it's such a simple shift. But to spend the first five minutes of your day truly coming into your body will change the way that you are for the rest of the day because you'll know what your mood is like you'll know whether you've got any aches or pains you'll know if you're thirsty you'll know if you're hungry and you've just spent a moment reconnecting with yourself and I like to think of myself as someone that I'm in a relationship with and this is the other shift that I really get a lot of my clients to make is they start their day differently and then they think of themselves as someone who they are literally in a loving relationship with. And if my partner woke up and first thing in the morning, he went on his phone, completely ignored me. And then like, you know, went off, completely ignored me, went and had a shower, put his clothes on, completely ignored me, spent no time with me, went and made his breakfast, completely ignored me, drove to work, completely ignored me. I would soon get sick of that partner. I would be like, come on, mate, there's the door. But we do that in the relationship with ourselves. How many of us wake up and we spend time just being with ourselves, that we spend some time meditating just to see how we feel, like spending some quality time with ourselves? How often do you spend time really massaging your face oils into your face and having like a sensual experience with yourself? Like how often do you eat foods and actually stop to savor the whole experience and think about how the taste and the smells are as you have your breakfast? Like as soon as you shift to being in a relationship with yourself, the way that you treat yourself and the richness of the present moment experience means that everything else that you do is completely transformed. And even just having a shower, when you're showering with someone you're in a relationship with, that stuff gets really fun. <laughs> so it's this idea that, you know, if you can see yourself as somebody that you are in a loving relationship with, the way that you interact in those situations, the, the, every choice that you make will start to reflect that deep level of love. And so that's why I say to people, start your day with no phone and to just feel into the, feel into the morning. And, you know, yes, there are of course things that you should do, like, you know, having a glass of water when you wake up rather than a glass of coffee and, you know, things like going and making sure you do some exercise and moving your body each day. But ultimately, when you strip it right back to why, the thing that will make the biggest difference is falling in love with yourself and your life because then you'll naturally want to do those things anyway. And, you know, the women out there are smart women, you know, they're smart. They're the smart girl tribe. They know that the things that they need to do to nourish their mind and nourish their body. I don't need to tell them that, you know, more fruit and veg and, and more water is going to do that. Starting your day with yoga is going to feel nice. 
But if you can do it from a perspective of really treating the woman that you are in a relationship with, which is the person that you're going to spend your whole entire life with. She is never going to, you know, be somewhere else or with someone else. Like she is you. And like up until your last breath, she's going to be there. So it's important more than any other relationship that you nourish, that you spend time nourishing that one. That's really powerful. I haven't ever heard anybody put it like that. And I've interviewed a lot of psychologists, psychotherapists, therapists, neurologists, And that's really interesting because that's such simple advice. And it's true, you know, my phone actually charges practically next to me. And being a CEO, I am that person that, you know, at the end of the day, Smart Girl Tribe is my complete passion. I'm in love with it. So I'm really excited. And the first thing I do do is pick up my phone. And I know that I shouldn't, but I still do. And you're completely right because then I'm flooded. You know, this is like half five, six in the morning. I'm flooded with emails. I go on social media. I see all of those girls in Bali on floats thinking, wow, they look like they're living the dream. And there's me here just living like this. One aspect that I'm really interested in, Rosie, and you might have to forgive me because I've been really getting into this new series on BBC called Mrs. America. And I want to talk about the relationship with the second wave feminist movement in the 70s, this idea that women can have it all. And we've touched on it a little bit, that this comes in, you know, from society. But what are your, you know, kind of views about that? Do you think women can have it all? Do you think, you know, something in us does tell us that we're naturally maternal, so we're going to be a lot happier if maybe we're more at home? Do you have any views on that? So I think I come to this from quite an interesting perspective because I've ethically chosen from my own perspective that I don't want to have children. Um, And so I'll talk to you a little bit about my perspective, which I don't think I can generalize to be true for anybody else other than myself. Um, But for me, I've chosen that I wouldn't like to have children just because I'm um, deeply concerned with the growing population in the world. And I know some people choose to approach it through veganism, but some people choose to approach it through um, philanthropy and charitable work. And for me, I know something that I would be able to do very easily is to just make a choice to not have children. And that has been something that I've had to explain a lot in my life because people don't really understand when you say, no, I don't really want children. And people have said to me, oh, well, at some point you're going to grow up enough and then you'll want children. Or at some point you will meet the right person and then you'll want children. And it just seems to be something that people can't see as a valid or reasonable thing to feel or to want. Um, And actually... I really advocate for women to be able to make whatever choice they want with themselves and their lives. And I think, of course, women could have a family and a successful business and the life that they want living wherever they want to. Like, I truly believe from a spiritual perspective that we are limitless spiritual beings. And once we step into that and we truly realize our power and potential to create an extraordinary life, we get the choice to make it however we want. And I don't think that we have to sit there and have a ton of sacrifices to do that. But it does mean being very, very conscious about the way you create your life and the choices that you make. And so for me, I am very passionate about a life full of travel, a life full of um, 
basically a lot of freedom um, and I'm very passionate about the way that I will give back to the world and as I said before my impact is one of the most important things in my life and so for me strategically thinking about the life that I wanted I felt like children didn't really fit into that for me as a personal choice but it has been something that I've had to explain time and time again and it's not because I don't feel like I could have those things with children but because I feel like I'm not particularly drawn to the idea of being a mother. So again, I don't feel like I would be being true to myself to enter into something like that, um, you know, with, with, without it being coming from me. And you know how I was saying earlier, think about the way that you want to feel. For me, I think about the way that I want to feel and the way that I want to feel is completely free. And having somebody who loves you and depends on you is a wonderful feeling that I know nourishes so many people. But for me, that doesn't feel like how I want to feel, you know? Um, so I think I have a fairly interesting perspective on it myself. I do think that people have the ability to create whatever life they want, but you kind of have to think a few steps ahead. So doing things in a like impulsive or automatic way when you haven't really thought out like what how that will create your life in five years time and 10 years time and things like that i think that's when people end up in lives where they feel a little bit depressed because they end up having made some choices that actually perhaps wasn't exactly how they wanted to feel um and it wasn't perhaps where they wanted to be and it's okay to make different choices along the line but there are some choices that become very difficult to change and having children is certainly one of them. Even things like having a mortgage is a lot more difficult to change than not. So I've chosen a life where I have no mortgage, I have no car, I have at the moment no partner and I have no children. And I actually don't really have much intention to have those things either. So, and you're yeah. a happy psychologist, basically, Rosie. So it's <laughs> the point that you can design what any life you want and still feel completely fulfilled. Because I think, you know, as a 20-something woman, it's so fascinating because you go so long not having the questions. And then suddenly it's almost like you turn, you know, 24 and maybe you get a frown line or something and all of the questions come in. Have you mm. found your life partner? Are you thinking about getting engaged? Are you having a baby? Have you thought about it? And on my end, I found it so interesting because if you just, you know, took out a blank white piece of paper and just wrote down my accomplishments, if you like, you would think, why would you be asking someone who has done a lot? Because I started my business from when I was 19. So in a short amount of years, I've done so much. Why would you be asking her that? Because we don't ask men. So I've always found it really interesting, this idea of the pressure we put on women that almost says you will not be happy unless you have a family or unless you have the family and the business. Because equally, stay-at-home mums, we don't treat them with the same amount of respect, I feel, as we would, you know, a CEO of a company. It's interesting. 
and they are the CEO, the chief operating officer, or the, yeah, the chief executive operator of a family. They are a CEO of a home and running a home is just as much of a big job as running a business is. And I think that you are so right that the cultural perception is so unfair when it comes to motherhood in a whole variety of ways. Um, and so I've had the awkward question from older relatives, which is, when are you going to find a nice boy and settle down and have some children, Rosie? Haven't you achieved enough? Haven't you traveled enough? Mm -hmm. And it's a, this idea that like, haven't you had enough? Now you need to settle. And I do not subscribe to that idea. I don't think you should ever feel the need that you have to settle. And I think it's so interesting that settling for something that's second best and settle down come from the same stem word, mm -hmm. which is this idea that settle is something that's secure and safe, but also is not flourishing. Mm -hmm. Like you would never say like, oh yeah, like I've got this like really high powered job and it makes me feel incredible and it's really settled, mm. you know? It's yeah. just not that. And I feel like for me, having studied what makes humans flourish and particularly in the later years studying what makes women in business flourish, it's this idea that female entrepreneurs are people who do not settle. They do not settle for their job just ticking along and being okay and kind of just, just about meeting their targets. These women are exceptional and they will push themselves out of their comfort zone time and time again to reach new levels of human flourishing. And whether that's through, um, you know, people who have made choices to do it as a mother as well, or whether it's through prioritizing growing your business or whether it's through you know choosing just solo to go all in on motherhood I think as long as you prioritize how you want to feel and really living it out to your fullest potential then you will find that deep sense of fulfillment and happiness that other people think comes from this idea of having what society considers to have mm -hmm. it all but really like having it all is having what you truly want not what somebody else judges you want and it's not the white picket fence and it's not the car and it's not the home and the husband and the two and a half children and a dog like unless that is exactly what you want for you and have always dreamed of and that's you living out your fullest potential and I'm sorry to tell you that is not going to make you happy yeah no of course I mean going kind of diving in deeper and talking about happiness do you think that is the secret to happiness judging things everything based on how it makes you feel I think sometimes things will make you feel scared mm -hmm. and you have to push through those and you know so it's about thinking how you want to feel in the long term rather than how you want to feel in the here and now and so this can be what people get confused with when I talk about you know, live your life on how you want to feel. Because I could say, live your life on how you want to feel. And then, you know, two months later, you've put on like 20 pounds because all you've done is eaten ice cream because it feels really good to eat the ice cream. But I think this is where it becomes important to think about. So there's two different types of happiness. And this theory comes um, 
was one of the first theories to be developed in positive psychology, but it actually comes from ancient Greek philosophy. And there's hedonic happiness and eudaimonic happiness. And you've probably heard of the word hedonism, which is this happiness that is very much based on in the moment happiness. It's a dopamine hit essentially. So whether that's your gambling or your shopping or you're eating your ice cream or having sex, like this is your true hedonic pleasurable moment happiness. And then you have your eudaimonic well-being. And that type of happiness is a future-proofed form of happiness. So if you continue to do that for the next 5, 10, 15 years, it would continue to exponentially increase in happiness and it doesn't have a drop. So that's a serotonin-based happiness. And sometimes can be to do with being linked and bonded to people. So it also brings in an oxytocin-based happiness. It's basically a very stable chemical form of happiness based on meaning and sustainability and satisfaction and self-worth. Whereas your dopamine-based one is based on exhilaration and perhaps can also be tied in with um, things like um, adrenaline and endorphins so you know bungee jumping cliff diving these kind of things and you actually do need both and I know that it sounds like I should say oh eudaimonic is the one disregard hedonic but it's just not true because do you know what savoring certain moments whether it's a great meal or an amazing night of passion you really need to be fully present for those things and to really truly enjoy them in order to get all full aspects of the eudaimonic well-being as well but it's when you can see those things as something in a greater scale of long-term happiness and i i check it with myself i say if i lived like i lived today for the next five years would I be truly happy and would I be where I want to be? And if the answer is no, then I know that there's certain aspects of what I'm doing which are moving me further away from eudaimonic well-being. And so then it gives it up to me. I, I start to think to myself, so what is it about those things? So for me, sometimes I can fall into patterns of working far too hard too. I absolutely love my work and I really resonated when you were telling me about you know waking up in the morning and you just start thinking about it and you you are passionate and you love it and so sometimes I'll sit there at the end of the day and I have a journal prompt so I do my gratitude journaling I write three different things that I'm grateful for and then I follow it with that magic question if I lived every day like today in five years time would I be where I want to and would I feel truly happy and what started to come up for me when I was working far too much is no, I wouldn't because I would feel burnt out. I would feel really stressed. I would have everything I wanted in terms of my success. But actually, if I lived like this every day, and especially when I have big launch periods or I'm, you know, bringing out a new service or promoting something in a really big way, you know, sometimes I'll work 12, 14 hour days and that isn't sustainable to do for five years. But being able to tune in at the end of each day and give yourself that feedback rather than do it for six months and then burn out because you haven't watched for the warning signs, that for me is massively important in terms of just being able to sense before it gets to a crisis point where things might be going a little bit off track. Wow. And obviously we've touched on this um, a little bit, this idea that society tends to stack things on us. The idea that women in particular are less than until we have the new moisturizer, until we look like this, until we have the car, until we have the husband, until we have the house. Do you think then, Rosie, in your almost professional opinion that we've got 
a higher chance at being happy, genuinely happy, if we live more minimalistically? Oh, that's a great question. And I think it completely depends once again on who you are and what you truly want. Because if what you truly want, and this is where it's important to spend that time establishing your day, getting to know yourself, establishing that relationship, because what you think you want and what you truly want, you don't actually know until you spend some real quality time with yourself. It's like trying to buy a gift for someone that you're only half in a relationship with and you never really talk to and you never really spend time with. That gift is going to be rubbish and they're going to be like, oh, you don't really know me at all. And so it's the exact same of how you live your life. Like if you can be in that true sense of like touching base with yourself, on a very, very, very regular basis, then you'll know what you truly want. And some people are the type of people who want to live in an opulent environment because that just is who they are at their core. But it's because it's intrinsically what they want rather than what people will perceive them as if they have that thing. And so basically my, my um, little check for that, my little spectrum is if, the world got to a point where there was no other people on the planet at all and I was the only one left walking around would I still want this thing and if the answer is no then it's an extrinsic goal rather than an intrinsic one so sometimes there are fabrics that I want that are very expensive because I like the way they feel on my skin and they make me feel amazing when I walk around in them and like the way the chiffon like moves around in the wind you know that kind of experience just makes me feel so beautiful and so present and so with myself yes it's an expensive thing and yes it perceivedly could be a sign of status but that's not why i'm doing it and therefore it makes me truly happy rather than externally happy now i know that my ex-boyfriend used to have this watch and it was a rolex watch and he used to put it on before every time that we'd go out for a meal and he would be like oh my dirty grand watch and he'd love it and yes it did make him happy but it was a hedonic happiness and not a eudaimonic one because he didn't put it on because if there was no one else in a world in the world he would walk around with this thing on his wrist he walked around with it because he would then put his wrist right on the table right next to where the person had to pour the wine so that when they poured his wine at the table they would have to have a look at it and although he'd never have admitted that to himself I'm really hoping that he doesn't listen to this <laughs> although he never would have admitted it to himself he was doing it for an extrinsic feeling of happiness rather than an intrinsic one. So I think with material things, ultimately it still comes down to that same theory, which is you could fill your life full of things that are worth very little financially if they make you happy, or it could be worth a lot financially, but it's, it's truly about understanding how do they make you feel. And for anyone listening who has never listened or spoken to any kind of psychologist before, Rosie, if somebody wanted to do that, they wanted to sit with themselves today and wanted to kind of work out what was making them intrinsically happy, what tips would you give them? Where can they start? Because it's very hard just to be told to sit with yourself and just think. Not many people can do it. Yeah. And it feels really uncomfortable initially because you have to go into a room with someone you've been ignoring for a very long time. And imagine if you'd been in that relationship for 
I don't know, 26 years. And this person that you've been in a relationship with for 26 years, you finally sit down and you look them right in the face and you look them right in the eyes and they go, oh my God, you don't usually do this. What's going on? This makes me feel uncomfortable. I don't like this. This isn't nice because it's not like something that you're used to. And then you just want to get your phone or something that distracts you. It's just something to go back to that normal way that the relationship is. And so there are definitely ways that you can do it that kind of ease you in and allow you to start that dialogue with yourself without it having to feel so wham bam thank you ma'am <laughs> you know and so the first thing that I always recommend if you want to start um having more of a relationship with yourself is journaling so um when I was doing my master's I started to running some workshops on writing for well-being and I noticed that there were so many different ways that we can use journaling and writing and particularly pen on paper writing to scientifically increase our feelings of well-being our feelings of connection with self our levels of optimism and the studies that come back from these are so incredible that not only does it encourage better mental health, but it actually improves physical health. And there's this study um, by Laura King in 2001, which is if you write about your best possible self, so the person that you would like to be um, in some point in the future, if everything goes as well as it possibly can, if you write about that every day for four days in a row, for six months afterwards, those people from that group went to 60% less doctor visits. They had 60% less physical illnesses just from writing for a four day stint of time on what would make them truly happy. And so that would be the very, very first thing I would recommend is to, to look up the best possible self exercise. Um, I might actually give you some for the show notes if you'd like. Would that be yeah, helpful? Please do. Yeah, absolutely. And so it essentially is just look at your life and think about it. And if everything went as well as it possibly could in every area, and you don't have to think about how you got there. You don't need to think about what what is the steps to get to that point. I just want you to think I've waved an absolute magic psychologist wand and there you are at that magical point in the future where all of your dreams have come true and your life is absolutely flourishing in every single way. What do you look like? What do you feel like? Who is around you? What does your work look like? What are you doing each day with yourself? What skills are you using and how are you helping the world? And if you can tune into that, and I have this something that I do on a weekly basis. I check in with this at the start of every single week before I make my goals and things that I give to my team to do. I, I tune into where I want to be because this is my compass point and it allows me to know that I'm walking in the right direction because I know what I want to be at in the future. And we get a choice to be at that point where all of our life wishes come true. We just have to be very, very, very conscious about how we're creating that. Wow. So from this session already, Rosie, I say session, podcast interview, I've learned really I need to stop looking at my phone. That's a big thing. Start asking myself, you know, what feeling is this going to give me? Is it going to make me intrinsically happy? And to start journaling. I think that's a lot. Is there anything else, you know, through your years of being such an expert in the happy field, if you like, that you would suggest somebody 
does because as I said we have a lot of female entrepreneurs listening to this so a lot of other women who are in my position as CEOs having built their own businesses from young is there anything that you have learned over time that is so powerful that you have to share it with our audience so for me I would say like my my little secret which is a little bit of a shortcut to happiness um, is about finding ways to break out of your default mode network um, and so I'm going to use a bit of sciencey language but I will explain what I mean by it so don't don't switch off at this point but <laughs> a default mode network is essentially the set of brain points that you use religiously again and again and again and again and so our brains work just like with water or electricity it wants to find the easiest path the easiest route to use every time we have a thought it goes from one place to another and so we have a part of our brain which which insulates that thought pathway or that electrical synapse so by insulating it it saves us time and energy because we know we're going to prioritize this one we use this one a lot and so when you are feeling anxious, depressed, stressed, and you're having those same thought processes again and again, and it feels like you're caught in a loop, it's largely because your default mode network has insulated those pathways so, so much that it feels really hard to think of another way and to get out of that way of thinking or feeling or being. Luckily, we have learned since 2001 that our brain has neuroplasticity. That's the ability to completely change that structure within our brain. And so to, to melt the myelination away on one pathway, it takes 21 days, which is why they say it takes 21 days to break a habit. Now, it takes 90 days to build a new pathway of priority in your brain. So if you're going to change your thought processes about something, you really, really need to consistently keep it up for 90 days. And there are so many amazing ways that you can increase neuroplasticity. Things like meditation things like learning a language or just getting out of where you usually spend time, go and explore another city or have a conversation with somebody that you wouldn't usually speak to. Allow yourself to access different thought processes than you usually would. Um, even trying different foods or you know, just doing things that are new and exciting, it builds new neural pathways. Um, and then a really interesting factor of my research that I actually, um, published my dissertation on in my master's was around um, psychedelics and there's I know that they're illegal in a lot of countries but one of the things that they do which is absolutely incredible is that they completely in an instant melt away your default mode network or the neural pathway that you use all like at the same time again and again so in whatever way that you feel drawn to whether it's meditation, whether it's learning a language, whether it's doing something that challenges you and gets you out of your comfort zone, whether it's going away to an incredible legal plant medicine retreat somewhere, whatever it might be, find a way to increase neuroplasticity and you will increase the richness and joy in your life and you'll have a lot of fun doing it. Wow. So if anyone is listening and they are aware that they're probably, they have maybe some triggers if you like or they have a fear maybe a failing so they won't push themselves out of their comfort zones what is something that everybody can do is quite general advice so you might not know what to advise but what is maybe one or two things that we can do to tap into our default mode if you like to start realizing what our 
habits are, what our self-limiting beliefs are? Is there anything other than journaling that we can do? Absolutely. Uh, meditation is an incredible resource for this. And it's the probably the most practiced way across all of time that people have been able to change their thought processes. And this is where actually a lot of people come into this misconception that meditation is this really, really scary thing. It's hard to do. You can't do it. You can't control your thoughts. You can't sit with yourself. But there is such a super simple way to meditate, which is literally you just feel your breath going in and you feel your breath going out and you feel your breath going in and you feel your breath going out. And then at some point your brain will start to wander and it will go and do something different. And that's the bit where you have success because the second you realize that your mind isn't on your breath, you can go, oh, okay, I'm gonna bring it right back to just the breath again. And so I think a lot of the time people get frustrated when they notice that their minds wander. And that's why um, a lot of people's perception of meditation is that it's really hard or they don't love it. But actually, in fact, if you notice that your mind has wandered, you are succeeding at meditation because you've come back to the present and you've been aware of your thoughts and your thinking. And that is it. That's all we're training ourselves to do through meditation is to notice our thought processes and how they work. Because as soon as you're aware of something, you have the ability to change it. And until you're aware of it, it's like the tail wagging the dog rather than the dog wagging the tail. And so, you know, there's so many incredible apps where there's tons of free meditations. I personally use Insight Timer. Um, there's a, a load of incredible meditation teachers and coaches out there and a lot more during lockdown have come online to do work for free and paid. There's tons of resources to access on YouTube. Um, and so for me, I would say, if you just want one place to start to be able to notice your thoughts and change them in a way that is very easy to access is to just start noticing your breath and then see when your mind wanders and maybe set yourself aside a few minutes to a day to do that. And the science proves that it's just six minutes a day consistently practicing it that will completely in 90 days rewire your whole neural pathway should you keep up a consistent practice. So in that case, will we almost be starting like with a blank sheet of a brain? We'll almost be able to start again. If we meditate six minutes a day consistently for 90 days, we're almost rewiring our brain. It's so exciting. You can hit the reset button and all of the things that you think are bad habits or parts of your personality or things that you can't change, you actually as long as you have the belief that you can change them and you have your meditation practice, your ability to rewrite your brain and who you are is, is almost inendable. It's, it's limitless. So when we're meditating, do we need to think then, Oh, what do I want to change? Or is it just a natural change that will happen on its own? It's natural. It's something that happens on its own. So the practice of meditation is literally just about having awareness of when your mind does something and being able to change it to do something else. And it's just like if you go to a gym and you train a certain muscle through repetitions, it's the exact same with your thought processes. So it's training your muscle of being able to break a thought halfway through and guide it to something else that is the most powerful superpower we can have. Because if you think about it, everything starts as an impulse as a thought 
your thoughts become your behaviors and your behaviors become your habits and your habits become your destiny because that's essentially how things work so it all just starts with the impulse of a thought and if every time you thought about ice cream you thought actually does this bring me more of what i truly want does this bring me the body that i want and the vitality that i want and you choose something based on the long-term goal rather than the instant impulse on autopilot you end up creating, consciously creating a life that you absolutely adore. And it's such a simple shift, but whether it's not arguing back with a partner, because you can actually realize in that brief space between the thought and the saying the thing that you realize that they're actually tired and you're going to give them grace. Or whether it's that, you know, instead of, um, you know, somebody pushes in front of you in a car and instead of beeping the horn and going ah you think to yourself i've got space between my thought and my action and maybe they're in a rush maybe they're having a crappy day off you go mate you know it gives you that space to choose differently and to choose consciously and that is honestly it becomes such a superpower because we don't realize how many people are making their decisions based on autopilot rather than based on who they truly want to be and how they truly want to feel. Wow. So as a happy psychologist, if you like, Rosie, um, and just being such an expert, I have to ask, are there any mental strategies we can implement when we're having a bad day? Because everybody has one. Yeah, a hundred percent. And do you know what? Even as someone who's a positive psychologist, I also have bad days too. They just last a lot less long than they used to. And so first of all, like is it's okay to feel not okay. So give yourself permission to feel whatever it is in the moment. And I think this is where positive psychology and um, kind of positive thinking become actually quite different because Positive psychologists know that it's important to feel the whole range of emotions. And they actually say that in order to be truly happy, you look for about a two to one ratio of happy to, or kind of positive vibrational thoughts to negative vibrational thoughts. So it's not that you never have the negative ones, it's just that the positive experiences tend to outweigh them. And that's what an optimist is. And that's what someone who is perceived to be truly happy is. And so the first thing I'd say is if you're having a bad day, allow yourself to notice, actually, is it a bad day or is it a bad moment that I can sit with now? And as soon as you call it a bad day, guess what? It becomes way more than the moment that you could have sat with and you've told yourself the story it's a bad day. So then your cognitive bias, your kind of story making skills looks for evidence in the rest of your day to support that the rest of it was bad. So the next thing to do is to notice if you're feeling like I'm having a bad day is to be able to go, okay, is this true? Mm. Is this the truth? It, what evidence do I have that every single thing this day has gone badly? Is there evidence that something has gone well? Is there a way that I can rationalize that there are positive aspects of this day? So first of all, feel the negative, let yourself sit with it and self-soothe. And that just means, you know, that relationship you're in, if your partner comes home and they are all kinds of angry, they don't need you to go, you're not angry. You're not angry. Don't feel angry. That will make them feel even more angry. But if you say to them, oh, I'm really sorry you're feeling that. Would you like to talk about it? 
So for example, with myself, I'd be like, oh, I'm really sorry that I'm feeling like this. I could do with journaling about it. So I'll just write out all the angries and I'll really feel them and I'll experience them for a bit. And then when I'm ready to, I'll stop and I'll think, is this a bad day or is this a moment of feeling this way? Is this something that I have to continue? Or is there evidence that actually I have a choice now as to whether I'm gonna to choose to reframe it as a good thing or a bad thing? And usually the final aspect of that, the third point is, you are the best PR or storyteller in your head. So like you get to make the stories and that forms how you perceive your reality. Do you wear the rose tinted glasses or do you not? Is the glass half full or is it half empty? And so you've experienced the thing and you've sat with it. You've checked in with false and real beliefs to see whether it's actually, you know, a whole experience of badness or if it's just this one isolated thing. So you've rationalized it. And then that final part is actually being able to spin yourself. What have I learned from this? Why did I experience this? And how has this benefited me? And as soon as you've managed to reframe it as something that was for you rather than to you, you shift yourself out of a big victim mode, which is feeling like, oh God, this has happened to me. And you empower yourself. This has happened for me because I've chosen to learn this. This has happened for me. So like um, I had a client recently who um, was running a massive business as a side hustle, but actually was also working full time. She was made redundant and she thought, oh my God, I can't believe this has happened to me. That was my security. I don't know what to do. And I just asked her, how, how could this have happened for you? If, uh, if the whole universe was created in a way that was allowing you to reach human flourishing, what would, what would be potential ways this has happened for you as a benefit to you? And through that, she was able to see, actually, I can spend so much more time working on my business now. And although my sense of security and settling has gone, it's allowed me to reach whole new levels in the amount of time and energy I can put into the thing I love. And if she'd have stayed in that victim stage where she'd been made redundant, she'd been let go, this has happened to her, why had this happened? She wouldn't have got to the other side, which is when actually you start to realize that are benefits to these things. And, you know, I've been through some terrible, terrible traumas in my life, and I'm sure some of the listeners have, and I'm not trying to say that horribly traumatic things were done to make an amazing part of you but actually the learning that you do as a result of the worst things in your life if you choose to allow yourself after you've felt the horrible things after you've been able to let those things process and percolate and when you're ready to even the worst 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 things that can happen can bring out qualities in you that perhaps you didn't even know existed. Maybe it's your level of resilience. Maybe it's your absolute incredible strength. Maybe it's a form of courage that you never would have been able to have otherwise. And not everything that happens to us in life feels amazing at the time, but it's that other thing again about eudaimonic happiness. How can I make it this a stepping stone to where I want to be in five years and who I want to be. Wow, that's really powerful, Rosie. And I do want to ask, because I read a lot of books, I'm an avid reader, I'm always reading about personal development. And you touched on the universe, you know, thinking, oh, if the universe is doing this for me as opposed to to me, 
are those individuals, let's say, who believe in a higher power, a higher force, whether that be God or the universe, Mother Divine, whatever that may look like, people who are more spiritual and do believe in a higher force, do they tend to be happier in your opinion? It's not just in my opinion, but actually evidence shows that from looking at the statistics when we've done studies on it, people who have some form of spiritual belief are in general happier people and that means in both ways so they are rating tending to be that they have a much deeper level of eudaimonic well-being or satisfaction for life which is measured through a satisfaction for life scale but also in the positive versus negative affect scale which is basically positive versus negative emotions Mm -hmm. so having a belief of something higher than yourself in whatever shape or form it is can make you feel like there is more meaning and purpose in your life which leads to a greater sense of happiness and fulfillment and tends to be people who will then prioritize positive over negative emotions okay if i gave you rosie this is an almost interesting question if you like if i gave you a mental or emotional empty suitcase and i said inside rosie you can only put in the three secrets to happiness if you like the three treasures to happiness what would you put in that empty suitcase because we've talked a lot we've talked about journaling meditation you know thinking almost your way out of it thinking about you know where my energy goes that's where my thoughts are going to go that's where I'm going to develop so if you could only choose three things what would you put in the empty suitcase number one build a loving relationship with yourself mm-hmm. that's it okay. <laughs> because everything else comes from that the journaling is a way to do that the meditation is a way to do that the choosing to change your brain pathways is a way to do that like build a loving relationship with yourself and everything else becomes so easy and it's honestly that's it that that's what it's about for me like when I made that shift everything else became so 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 much simpler to live out because I spent enough time checking in with myself that I realized when I started to become off my path and I think like when you love yourself you're able to be kind to yourself when you love yourself you're able to feel enough all of those things like we were talking about in the beginning of the chat about um you know things around burnout you just don't get there if you build a loving relationship where you're tending to yourself you know the things that we were talking about um around the media and and feeling like all of these things are, are pressures if you truly love with yourself and and align with with yourself again that doesn't seem to affect you in the same way like i really think that that is the foundation to to all of it is just spend time falling in love with and nurturing and nourishing a relationship with who you are oh my gosh and then i always finish the podcast with two questions rosie the first being what is your favorite quote or the mantra you live by this is a great question and i actually wrote it down because i don't (laughs) i don't remember it off by heart so bear with me one second while i bring it up okay um it's a quote by Marcus Aurelius and it says people look for retreats for themselves in the country by the coast or in the hills 
but there is nowhere that a person can find a more peaceful and trouble-free retreat than in his own mind. So constantly give yourself this retreat and renew yourself. Wow, that's really powerful. I feel like I've used that adjective a lot, Rosie, but that's exactly how I feel about this podcast episode. And then my final question is, what books do you recommend? I'm really excited about this one because I feel like you're going to have some fantastic recommendations. I've got a ton of recommendations, but I'm going to try and keep it like as short and sweet as possible. But if people are interested in a spiritual perspective to life, I'm going to direct them to a book called Essence of the Upanishads. The Upanishads is an ancient Vedic text um, and it's older than the Bible or the Quran. Um, and it basically is the whole foundation of yoga philosophy. So a lot of people think yoga is standing on a mat and getting yourself into weird contortions, but that's like a tiny, tiny aspect of it. It's the same equivalent of the little finger of the body in terms of how the whole body works. So if you're interested in, you know, that quote that I said, during the call about your habits becoming your destiny and your thoughts becoming your your actions which become your habits that actually comes from the Upanishads and so I would definitely recommend reading that and the essence of the Upanishads by a guy called Eknath Eswaran um, I'll tell you how to spell it and put it in the show notes and everything because he's not an easy guy to write out but he does it in a really really easily approachable way that anyone in this modern world will be able to learn a lot from and um for me, that was what truly started my journey, was being able to start to see the world from, from that perspective, that yoga perspective. Um, in terms of positive psychology, um, I'm going to recommend my mentor's book. So I work with um, a mentor called Nick Pigeon, and her book is called Now Is Your Chance. Um, and it's a 30-day guide to living your happiest life based around positive psychology principles. And she is absolutely out of this world about explaining the science and the data in a way that is so easy to approach but also mega actionable so that you can feel incredible in just 30 days um, the final book recommendation that i'd like to give because i know that these are very ambitious women is called the big leap by gay hendrix mm -hmm. And this one is all about the ways that we potentially will hit the upper limit or the ceiling within our life. And we don't know how to push ourselves beyond that point. So if you're an ambitious woman and you feel like you are plateaued or you've hit a point where you don't know how to get up to the next level, The Big Leap by Gay Hendricks will talk you through all these different strategies and ways that you can see when you start to sabotage yourself or in ways that you're holding yourself back or playing small and gives you this whole way of thinking where you can really give yourself permission to just absolutely flourish and reach that next level. Wow. And are there any books that you recommend to your clients that aren't on this list? Yes. Good question. Bear with me one second. So one of the things that I recommend to my clients is called building a story brand. Um, and so I think ultimately when we build a soul aligned business and a business that makes us happy, our mission um, and our why and who we are and how we help our clients be the hero in the story of their own life becomes incredibly important. And so being able to build a brand based around the story of how you can be of service and how you help people allows you to really, really flourish in business in a way where you don't have to use those horrible marketing tactics where you kind of go, you know, there's only one spot left. And if you don't get it, then you're going to feel like rubbish on the other side of things 
things. You know, this teaches you to build a story um, and a brand and marketing and a business around a positive feeling of aspiration and where somebody wants to be and how you can guide them to be the hero of their own life rather than you know using tactics that will as as we spoke about earlier like the cosmetics industry that make people feel a bit rubbish yeah no completely and you mentioned nick pigeon who i am aware of um and i've listened to several of her podcast episodes so is she your mentor and if so do you think that's another key to being happy having someone to help guide you 100 percent. she is fantastic and um when i was but when i was teaching i actually read her book now is your chance and I thought to myself, my goodness, how amazing would it be to be a positive psychologist and like completely study happiness? And so she seeded that idea for me. Um, and then a few months earlier this year, um, I started to reach some levels of success by myself and had um, got to a point where I was getting published in different places. And she reached out to me on Instagram and invited me to see whether um, I'd like to have her as a mentor and to work with. And for me, that was just like, I cannot actually believe that that happened because I was trying really hard not to fangirl over it. It was like, oh my God, she's the whole reason that I came down this path. Um, and so definitely having people, people that you look up to and aspire to, because if you know that somebody else has done it, then you know it's possible for someone, therefore it's possible for you. And if you can have them closely work with you as a coach or a mentor, even better because then they will literally make it so much easier and so much simpler for you to be able to reach that level of success because you've literally got somebody guiding you who knows how to do it and knows it's possible and knows how to create it in the world it's kind of like being able to have that shortcut yeah amazing that was wonderful thank you so much rosie is there anything you would like to add just that it's been an absolute pleasure being here. I really have enjoyed having this interview and that if anybody else wants to kind of check out my stuff or keep in touch with me, I would love to be friends over on Instagram. My Instagram's at I am Rosie Peacock. Um, and then I also have an amazing Facebook group just for um, female entrepreneurs who want to lead a soul aligned business and a soul aligned life. It's called the Soulful Success Society and you're incredibly welcome there. I get lots of guest experts in, I share a ton of resources and I really nourish my tribe of people. So I'd love to see you guys around there amazing and as always everything is going to be in the show notes but thank you so much again Rosie this has been such an enlightening soulful podcast infused I have to be honest this has been one of my favorites I have been learning so much and I've been doing this now you know I've been working I don't know for some years you know since I was 19 and I've interviewed so many different therapists and psychotherapists. And even when I haven't interviewed them, just had conversations with them. But this hands down has been one of my favorites. I feel like there have been so many takeaways, even for me, which not that, oh, I'm so successful in my line of business. I'm surprised. But it's quite rare that I ever hear things that I haven't heard before. Really rare. So it was an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. And I've got no doubt we're going to stay in touch and hopefully collaborate again. A hundred percent. And if anyone else has had big takeaways, oh my God, that lights up my life like nothing else. So if people wanted to take a little snapshot of the podcast episode, share it to their IG stories, 
tag yourself and tag me at I am Rosie Peacock. I will shout you out and probably cry little happy tears because you guys have learned something from, from this experience that I've really enjoyed too. So thank you.